Uh, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm the host, uh, as always, uh, Ian Lewins, one of the consultants in the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. Uh, and I'm joined today by Dr. Will Carroll, who's a consultant paediatrician based in Stoke. Uh, good afternoon, Will. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Ian. Um, and sort of more importantly today, you're also the assistant officer for the MRCPCH examination um, and co-author of the, the famous Sunflower book. Um, and we thought we'd talk today about the, the written exams that, that uh, paediatric trainees uh, have to undertake if they want to get membership. Um, now, when I a million years ago, when, when I did the written exams, it was 1A, 1B and two written why has it changed and when did it change and how has it changed oh now that's that's tricky i can't quite remember exactly when we changed the nomenclature but it was it was oh it must be eight nine years ago and the names were changed partly to reflect the content of the examinations and also to reflect a move away from the royal college of physicians really the the old 1a 1b and part two written naming came from the Royal College of Physicians and historically we'd used their question bank to set our own exams but as time's gone by over the years we've had more and more of our own questions and we've actually set a syllabus. There's another reason for moving away from this 1A, 1B part 2 written description in that the exams don't need to be considered in a linear fashion. Uh, We're very happy for candidates to take any exam in any order And for some individuals, they're more ready to take their exams, like the theory and science exam, before they're able to take their foundation of practice exam. It depends a bit on where you're working in the world and what your previous experience and knowledge is. Yeah, and that's interesting. So we've got still three written exams. There's foundation of practice, theory of science, theory and science, and uh, the application one, which is, again, a two-parter, isn't it? Yes, it's a bit of a monster, isn't it, the AKP? Um, And is this sort of the expectation that people tend to sit it in that order, or what do you find? Um, Well, people do usually sit it in the order of doing foundation of practice and, and possibly together with theory and science first, and then doing... AKP applied knowledge and practice second, but there's no reason that they have to. They can they can sit it in any order they want to, and you could sit all the the exams if you wanted to within a short period of time if you felt able to. Yeah, and you can sit this at any stage of your training because we've we've certainly had I'm no foundation trainees who are very enthusiastic and very bright will actually sit this whilst they're still in foundation. Is that right? Yeah, you can start the exams as soon as you've got your primary medical qualification. So so literally day one out of medical school, you could apply and, and sit the exams. And for some individuals who've known they've wanted to do paediatrics from the get-go and have worked really hard and used the books, they might actually have a fair chance of passing the exam quite early on in foundation. Okay. So let's think then about sort of the, the structure of these examinations, because um, that, that's changed and uh, changed a while ago but but for people who've not sat these before not done them how firstly i mean how do you go about applying to sit the exam okay so there's a link on the college website and there's actually quite a lot of useful advice that i'm not certain always gets read on the college website about applying for the exams as well 
And that includes all sorts of information that you might not think about straight away. And certainly as an educational supervisor and as a clinical supervisor, it's important to know about that information. So you can ask for reasonable adjustments for the exam if you want to. And we try really hard to make sure that anybody who has to have reasonable adjustments gets those in place. And many people haven't really thought about that, certainly since they've left medical school. Yeah. And it's so you you kind of cr- you have to create a, a login. You apply. You pay your money, um, and the they're done. Are they still done at sort of set centres? If you're doing it in the UK around the UK, uh, well, yes, but the number of centres is much bigger. We moved to computer-based testing. I think I I, I went white. My hair, a lot more grey hair, appeared overnight when we moved to computer-based testing away from paper-based format, which allows people to sit it in much smaller centres with a computer, potentially with some other candidates and and an invigilator. But that means we've moved away from having just one big drafty hall with all the candidates in the same place. Yeah, I remember it very fondly. Um, And... What what was the sort of thinking behind? Why did we move over to sort of a computer-based system? And what kind of advantages do you think that confers to the candidates? Well, the first thing was that it, it, it worked, which was great, because I was, at the time, I was the, um, I was the head of theory exams. And, and I can remember having kittens about moving to computer-based testing because we had a system that worked on paper. But it was quite expensive, actually, to ship all the exam papers around the world. Mm. Uh, I, I guess um, many people listening to this in the UK think of the MRC-PCH examination as a UK exam. But actually, uh, only a very small proportion of the number of people who take the exam in each diet are from the UK. Uh, far more are from overseas. So it's, it's, it's quite a big enterprise. And having a computer-based system means we can keep everything much more secure um, and we can actually pull together papers and do it all on a computer now rather than having to send it to the printers. I remember the happy days of looking at the proofs from the printers and realising that there was a typo error on page three and having to put bits of paper in the front of each exam to, to say, ignore ignore the word no in question 14. Right. Um, so when the candidate comes, they sit down, they log on, and then they've got the certain amount of time to sit and go through their questions, and then it closes down at the end, I guess. Yeah, and, and we can do all sorts of really interesting things. So we can see how long candidates are taking to undertake the exam, which I mean, for most candidates, they finish on average 12 minutes early. And I can tell that by looking at how long it is they spend on each question. We can actually see how, how long they spend on each page viewing it and, and whether they go back to it as well, which gives us some interesting information about candidates and how, how they perform, and which questions are really hard and get them thinking and reading for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, I guess one question I, I suppose that you must get from candidates is, you know, surely if it, if it is a working on a computer, the computer probably knows whether you've passed or failed immediately. How long does it take for the results to come out? And, and if it's several weeks, why does it take so long? Okay, and that's probably the commonest question I've been asked over the years with my involvement in exams. Uh, and the reason it takes so long to get the pass mark out is that the pass mark isn't set on the day that we 
set the exam or we we do the exam. Um, actually, there'll be six or seven examiners or senior trainees who've already passed the exam taking the exam at about the same time as the candidates. And they'll be doing the exam themselves to work out, A, can they pass the exam? B, are there any questions in it that look a bit ropey? C, how hard is each of those questions? And it's only when we've got those judgments that we can decide how hard the exam is and decide where the pass mark's going to be set for each individual diet. Right. Now, that process is called the Angoff process. And we then have to meet following the paper and decide as a panel where we're going to set the pass mark for each question. And we have an interesting intellectual exercise to go through where we have to decide what proportion of borderline candidates would get each and every question in the exam correct. And we also have to decide whether we remove some questions from the exam. And typically we'll remove between five and seven questions from each exam. And often the candidates will have spotted those questions and have written stern words, sometimes stern words on social media, um, saying, why did they ask us this terrible question? Mm -hmm. And um, the examiners who did the exam on the same day will also be making the same comment, and that question will be pulled from the exam. Right. Uh, so there is some sort of, you know, obviously looking at this afterwards and a bit of modification. Uh, and so roughly how long does it take from sitting to, to get sort of getting the result? Uh, it depends a bit on how long it takes the psychometricians to get the data out, usually about four or five weeks. So thinking then about the style of questions that, that people are going to be sitting and being asked, um, it's not just simple true false anymore is that right uh, no absolutely and we've got rid of true false questions because um well 50 percent of um of, of monkeys can get a true false question right um so they don't discriminate quite so well between individual candidates and people have moved away from those in all sorts of exams undergraduate exams as well and um, we're now much more commonly using best of five questions yeah. We've still got extended ma- matching questions in there uh, where there are nine possible options, but they're extremely difficult to write. And, and so over time, we're likely to move towards a best of five only. Right. And, and when you sort of say best of five, i.e. there's a question, five potential choices, all of which might have some degree of truth in, and the candidate's got to pick in pick the best, as it were. Yes, and that, that commonly leads to... Um, a lot of upset because it, it's much, much harder to determine what's the best answer rather than what's the right answer. Because yeah. that extra level of knowledge that you need to know that not only are all of these possible, but this one's the right one because dot, dot, dot is actually quite difficult. Okay. Thinking then about the the, the first two papers, the the, the FOP and the, 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 the TAS, what sort of are the differences between those two papers? Okay, so foundation of practice is a bit like undergraduate medical school exams for many people. It, it's Historically, it grew out of what would you be expected to know after you've done six months paediatrics? 
But as time's gone on, it's really turned into what would we expect you to know after you've done six months paediatrics? And actually, many people can do that in foundation, particularly if they've had a paediatric job and been interested and and read widely in medical school. It really requires typically, I think, between 150 and 200 hours solid work in addition to what you've done in medical school. Um, And pretty much any of the undergraduate medical textbooks will help you prepare for it. I think sometimes people underestimate the 150 to 200 hours of work that you need to put in, though. And if we're really honest, many of the Many of the candidates in the UK who found that exam difficult haven't always put in that time. It's much more difficult as an exam, actually, for doctors working overseas. And we certainly know that you've got an advantage in passing foundation of practice if you've been practicing in the UK, because many of the questions are a little bit contextual and require a working knowledge of the UK healthcare system. Theory and science exam is, is it does exactly what it says on the tin. And um, it's an understanding of theory and science, and it requires you to really know the basics of what, why a body works the way it does. You need to know physiology, embryology, pharmacology. And interestingly, our overseas candidates perform at exactly the same level as UK candidates in that exam. So there's, there's, no, there's no differential attainment in that exam at all which perhaps indicates that medical teaching overseas is alive and kicking in medical schools and certainly concentrates on some of that basic science. Yeah. A lot of sort of trainees I've spoken to tend to find the, the theory and science the harder of the two. Is that sort of a, a, is that a widely held perception that the TAS is the trickier of the two exams? It is for UK graduates um I, I and and that's not the same for all parts of the exam so our uk graduates depending probably on which medical school they went to and how much science was taught in their medical school will find the theory and science exam a bit harder than foundation of practice but we have to contrast and say the the, the uk graduates can have pass rates of more than 80% passing foundation of practice first time Whereas the most recent diet of theory and science, it was just over 60% of people passing it first time. So there isn't a massive gap between the percentage of people passing it on every diet. There's certainly a difference in how well prepared individual candidates are for theory and science, though. And we know that candidates who haven't started to revise statistics, evidence-based medicine, have never really revised embryology since the day they did it in medical school, don't know any neuroanatomy, they're all going to struggle with the exam <laughs> because those questions are going to consistently come up. Yeah. And in terms of um, then the, the the AKP, that's a paper that's sort of split in two, isn't it, over a whole day. Um, what sort of things is that asking? And, and is it the same, similar style of questions as in the first two papers? Yeah, there's, there's more question types, um, which is uh, a little bit of a challenge for the computer-based systems, but we're, we, we just about get them to work. 
There are images. It doesn't mean we won't have images in, in the FOP and TAS exam over time. It's just we haven't historically had them. Um, and it's meant to address and to try and assess a degree of critical reasoning as well. So in historical terms, you used to have to have a degree of experience to be able to answer the questions. But now if you've studied hard, you can still pass that exam. Um, it requires you to go one step further in your reasoning, though, very often. And that you need to not only have a piece of knowledge, but know how to apply that knowledge in practice. The, there's some useful you know, resources and books for that. The, the college has tried to write the clinical cases series that, that help with all parts of the exam. And there is, a, there is a book called Clinical Cases for AKP, which I think is helpful. And there's a new book on the way that um, my colleagues Martin Hewitt and Roshan Adapa are trying to reinvigorate master course to make it more suitable for passing the AKP exam. Um, and then thinking about this, the AKP, you kind of mentioned, you know, for the first two, you, maybe somebody with six months experience of paediatrics and a bit of study under their belt could pass that. In terms of the AKP, are you, generally speaking, people who've done a little bit more paediatrics who have sort of done st1 and st2 maybe yeah it, it's interesting actually and and the problem with looking at the statistics on this is that you have a degree of um good people will take it early so the pass rates for an st1 doctor and for an st2 doctor for akp are very similar across diets but of course you've got a self-selecting group of people taking it at ak at st1 who are quite good at exams and like doing them and probably have already passed the FOP and the, the, the TAS exams. So it, I, d I don't think there's a too early moment to take it, but you need to have done the hours of work necessary and, and estimate that all, all parts of the clinical, uh, of the MRC-PCH exam, including the clinical, will take a typical graduate a thousand hours of study. Mm. Now you might need to devote 100 hours to FOP and 200 hours to TAS and 500 hours to AKP and 200 hours to clinical. But the amount of time you need to devote really depends on what you've done in medical school leading up to that. So some people will not need to spend as long on TAS because they've had a very strong theory and science grounding as an undergraduate, but they might need to spend longer on AKP or vice versa. Yeah. For those people that... Um don't pass the examination. I remember when I sat the old 1A for the first time and I, I just sat it blindly. And hands up, I did no work for it whatsoever. And surprise, surprise, I failed. And I got a very polite letter from the college saying, uh, thanks very much. Please don't do this again anytime soon. Um, <laughs> maybe do a bit of work reading next time, I think was the feedback. Um, do you still give some feedback to, to, to candidates that don't pass? Yeah, I mean, if you if you miss by a long way, you often get some feedback. And whilst there's no strict limit now on the number of attempts, after you've had a after you've had a certain number of attempts, you need to have discussed things with your educational supervisor. But for the vast majority of candidates, you're not going to get into that position. And I think the clear message from me would be any anyone who's actually worked and failed the exam three times needs to sit down and meet with our educational supervisor and discuss getting a review of their ability to take exams. 
we found quite a lot of people, certainly as head of school, I found people in my own school who were struggling with the exam. And when they went to the trainee support service and had educational psychology review them, they identified very particular problems with processing information that are just really important to know about before you're a consultant. And and those individuals then got through their exams because they had appropriate advice and guidance and they hadn't had problems before. Right. The theory and science exam and the AKP are so testing, they're going to be the hardest exams that a pediatrician will ever do. They're going to uncover subtle problems in some individuals. Yeah, and I guess that sort of brings us on to the, the issue of, as you briefly mentioned before, reasonable adjustments. Um, if this does uncover something, say, for example, that, that a person has previously undiagnosed dyslexia, for example, um, how, what sort of reasonable adjustments are you talking about and and how do you go about making sure that the exam meets those adjustments? So if their training programme director or head of school writes to the college and says, yep, we definitely think this candidate needs to dot, 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 we will actually try and do exactly what we're being asked to do. So for some candidates, that means having an exam just in paper, sat at the college. Uh, We can have people sit with candidates if it's necessary, although that's rarely been asked for. Most of the candidates that we get asked for reasonable adjustments have had them before in medical school. And for them, that just means some extra time. Although time pressure is, is often not an issue for candidates in the exam. We, we know that most of them finish inside the time. So having an extra 10, 15 or 25 percent of time for the exam doesn't usually help. Sometimes it's something a bit more specific. But the college is really very keen to hear about people who need adjustments and providing them some evidence about what it is that they need. And it's not just someone saying, I'd quite like to do it in London. And then we will bend over backwards to make those adjustments. But I'm guessing that the responsibility to sort of declare those and and ask for those lies firmly with the candidate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think heads of school are very aware that if a candidate's repeatedly failing, that they need some support put in. And and it's really important the individual accepts that. Yeah. Um, people can feel a little bit got at if they've not passed the exam and then they've got a, a, a supervisor or a college tutor or a training program director saying, well, you need some support now. And they think it's a bit punitive, but it's actually there to help them. Yeah. Um- Thinking then, you know, you've been doing this a while. Do you have any, for for people who are sort of thinking about sitting these exams, do you have any sort of top study tips that you've sort of gained over the years? Oh, yes. Um, So using the right books is important. On the college website, there's a list if you look through the exams. uh, And we recommend using pretty much any undergraduate textbook doesn't have to be the Sunflower book, um, but any undergraduate textbook will help you for foundation of yeah. practice. For the theory and science exam, we're a little bit more specific. There's a college publication uh, called The Science of Pediatrics that's also by Tom Lissauer and myself. And that was written absolutely specifically to allow people to know what the curriculum is for the theory and science exam. It's It's a little expensive, and so I usually recommend that people take it out of the library. 
but we use it to sense check any question that we think is difficult. We, we actually check, is it in the book? And if it's not in the science of pediatrics or in the clinical cases book, then we think very hard about whether we should include right. it or not. Now, we're not saying that we won't put any questions in the exam that aren't in there because there may be something very important scientifically that's happened in the last two or three years that hasn't made its way through the textbooks yet but is important to ask about in the exam. Nonetheless, we, we do think really carefully about including anything that's not in those two sources. Um, and for the AKP, at the moment, we recommend using archives of disease of childhood, education and practice. I think it's very good. It's a good source of information. It's, it's quite educational. I, I recommend using pediatrics and child health because it's got some self-assessment questions in there, but I have a conflict of interest potentially because I edit that journal. And we recommend using the clinical cases book as well. So there are there are there are plenty of resources available for people. Are, are there also sort of um, sample questions that people can access? So there's there's kind of there's a bit of a paper. Well, there's bits of papers. There's sample papers online, and I think that the candidates all do those and know them inside out. Of course, they're they're almost certainly not going to come up in the exam because we're quite careful about making sure that sample questions aren't in the exam papers. Um, we weren't quite so good historically, um, but we are now. Um, there are questions in paediatrics and child health. Uh, there are questions for people interested in doing foundational practice. So there's a question book that accompanies the Sunflower book called Self-Assessment in paediatrics, which is a fair source of questions. They're aimed at the undergraduate, really, but some of them are at the level that's going to come up in foundation of practice. Um, lots of people use and seem to like using the um, the, the on-examination website. Um, I, I think the questions there are of variable quality, so I'm not so sure myself. Okay. Um one final question, I guess, and I don't know whether you can answer this, is that one of the complaints a lot of the time from, from people doing these things is, why are exams so expensive? Um, if I'm <laughs> sitting at a computer and and doing that, why, why is it cost 300 whatever quid to, to do? And I don't know if you can answer that. No, no, I, I can. Um, and it's fairly obvious actually over time it's exceptionally expensive to generate good quality questions i guess you know as an educationist ian how difficult it is to write a genuine best of five question and we have question setting groups up and down the country where we invite people who've got the membership to come and help write questions and um, they're, they're relatively expensive and we get relatively few good questions that are usable at the end of that process and even when they go through that process, they've got to go through two or three more rounds of review. Um, by people who do it completely unpaid, there's a huge group of theory examiners who spend lots and lots of hours doing this. But even when you take away and, and make their time for free, it's still quite expensive to get a question into the bank. We have to renew those questions as well. So after eight or nine years, there are relatively few questions that are still current and usable. So by the time we have to generate about a thousand questions for each part of the exam to keep it sustainable, it, it's quite an expensive operation to run the theory exams. So it's, it's so that's why, and it's you know the old joke of oh it's keeping up the wine cellar at the college. 
<laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah, no, no wine cellar whatsoever. <laughs> um, and I- and for, for people who've, say, passed the exam um, and are sort of interested in, in education, how would they go about sort of getting involved in question writing? Um, so we, we try and hold groups around the country. Um, some schools will actually put on a training day for their registrars. And, and we do try and encourage the heads of school to do that because it's excellent educational practice, we think, setting questions. You certainly learn how an examiner thinks and then you can teach a bit better as well, I think. Um, there are also um, opportunities once you've done question setting, setting locally to get involved either as a trainee or as a new consultant with the theory exam boards. There's quite a lot of examiners who are just clinical examiners, but there's an equal number who are theory examiners and write questions in their own time and attend meetings where we discuss questions, good questions, and help with things like ANGOF. So that process of setting the pass mark, as soon as a trainee has got the exam, and probably if they've done a year or two as well, so they've got a bit more under their belt, they're very welcome to get involved with ANGOF, which means they'll do the exam, they'll get a login code, and then they'll come to the college one day and help us set that pass mark. Uh, We find that the trainees are actually very good at that. Um, And I guess... Finally, Will, then, if, um, do, do you think that the, the written exam is likely to significantly change or significantly evolve over time? Or, or is it how the setup as now, is that going to stay for a while, do you think? Well, I, I guess the biggest change in the next year or two is we're likely to lose extended matching questions, I think, in a planned way. Um, and once they're gone, then we'll have a single set of questions. I think that the the other big change on the horizon is that we're likely to see an increase in images and videos being used. They're just really difficult to get hold of because you obviously need patient consent to use them. But the, so that's potentially the, the the future then. Absolutely, and we we have video now in the clinical exam, but that might move its way into the theory. Process. Perfect, lovely. Uh, well, that's been fantastic, and I'm sure that anybody, um, as a supervisor of trainees or somebody as a trainee thinking about how do I go about what's what's the best way to go about this, I think that's been invaluable for them. Um, thank you so much for your time. No worries, thanks, Ian. And there's lots more advice on the college website. But if anyone's struggling in particular with things like the theory and science exam, the college does run a theory and science taught course. And I think our next one's going to be on the 10th of January, 2020. But depending on whether you're listening to this podcast, that might be old news. So keep an eye on the college website. Yeah, always worth looking at the website. Absolutely. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Will. Take care. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, bye.